Genesis 46 is where we will be. We'll read beginning in verse 1 together. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Yalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paran Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Ezbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And the Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. And these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the, sons of Nash, the son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the sons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph, to show the way before him in Goshen. They came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, 
Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided a place where we can gather together to read it, Lord, to to read it without fear of anyone coming to persecute us for it. God, that we can study together and we can publicly read and declare and apply your word. Father, thank you for this blessing, Lord, that we take for granted too often. We praise you. We pray that you would be the one who is exalted and glorified. Lord, that you'd be the one who teaches us that that Jesus Christ would be glorified, exalted, and worshiped as is right. In his name we pray, amen. Well, there's been a lot of research, continues to be done a lot of research on church attendance and the state of churches in America, especially since the pandemic that happened a few years ago. The trend already was that people had been attending church less often, and more people had been more quickly being added to the category of the religious belief of nuns. I believe in nothing. You know, I I identify with none at all, no religious category. But especially during the period, uh, during and after the pandemic, uh, that's been a really intense time of study for researchers to find out what's been happening during and since that time in churches. And it's been intense research there because it seems to be that church attendance has been declining even more rapidly since the pandemic than it had been before. But here's another sign of trouble. According to LifeWay Research, in 2019, there were more Protestant churches that closed than were planted. In fact, in 2019, the numbers were 3,000 Protestant churches were planted, while 4,500 Protestant churches closed. So church attendance and participation in churches is shrinking. Now, interestingly, the top reasons for why people say they're leaving the church or not going to church or deciding to do something different on Sundays than they had before hasn't really changed. It includes divisiveness, hypocrisy, feeling judged. But it's ironic that the very things the church is supposed to be and supposed to be doing are what people say they do not experience in the church. And that can happen for a lot of reasons, that people say, I don't see this, or I saw divisiveness, I see hypocrisy, I, I see these things. People may not recognize it when, it's, when there's fellowship there. They may not understand and see what true fellowship looks like. They may withdraw from it and claim it's not there. It, it may be there and they, it just doesn't look like what they expect, or it just isn't there. The, the fellowship and the unity that should be what is part of the church. Because the church is meant to be a fellowship. The, the koinonia, that's that word that we use for our small groups, the, the koinonia fellowship of unity, partnership, serving together, worshiping Jesus together, making disciples together. It, it's meant to be a place where Rather than being hypocrites and calling out sin and everybody else and everywhere around us, rather than judging everybody else, we confess our own sins and we rejoice in the forgiveness of God because of Jesus together 
because our sins are removed from us and the consequences of our sin are removed from us in Jesus. So that when we do call out sin, and we still have to call sin, sin, we we can't just ignore it and pretend everybody is okay and just accept everything. We still have to call out sin. But when we do, it's not from a position of self-righteousness, but a humble position of love and worship to Jesus Christ and love for those who need their sin pointed out, just like we do. We, be, we who belong to Jesus by God's grace, we, we who are part of the body of Christ belong to the church, the, the body of Christ. That, that's what we are a part of. That, that's who we are when we are together. The church is, as we've said before, an organism, not an organization, and it's a universal whole, but it's expressed in small areas locally, in local churches And it's a blessing and it's a fellowship that cannot be and is not found outside of the church. The blessings and the fellowship and the unity that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, you can't find it. It's not to be found outside of the church. Now, there are times we realize, we recognize that we get our toes stepped on when we come to church. There are times when when we ourselves have stepped on other people's toes. There are times we haven't been loved as we should, and others have, you know, we haven't loved as we should, but regardless, this is where we should be as God's people, because this is what He makes of us. In fact, Acts 20, 28 tells us that these people, this church, this body of Christ is here and is in existence because Jesus shed His own blood to make us part of this church. Amen. Becoming part of the church is not a side benefit of becoming a Christian. It's not something extra. It's not being added to the people who comprise Christ's body is not something trivial at all. Attending a worship service where Christ's body comes together in a local congregation is not something really even to be taken lightly. And not just attending, but serving using the gifts that God has given you as part of the local church body where you are so that we all can be edified and encouraged and convicted and grow together to become more like Christ. It's crucial and it's necessary, the body of Christ is. So as we come together in the church, there's blessing and there's fellowship here like there is nowhere else. This chapter gives us a picture of that in four parts. And the church isn't in existence in Genesis 46, but as we've said before, we, we, we read the Scriptures in the Old Testament and, and we draw out the eternal principles that, that apply. And so we, we're not uh, just going into this and making it say what we wanted to say. We're, we're drawing out the principles and then we're applying them um, as we notice them, as they come alive to us in the Scriptures where we are today. So let's look at these four parts. Let's learn and grow together about the... the the fellowship and the blessing that we have as part of the church, even this local church. Number one, verses one through seven. In the first part here, we see a God-given confidence, a God-given confidence. After Jacob became convinced that Joseph was really alive in Egypt, his son Joseph, who's, who's been missing for over 20 years, presumed dead, is not just alive, but he's the most powerful man in Egypt aside from Pharaoh. He must have been a pretty proud father at that point, right? <laughs> look at my son. Not the bad kind of proud, but the good proud. Like, right? I mean, look what he did with his life. Look what he did with himself, right? 
Look who he is. He'd been trapped in worry and fear and sorrow for over 20 years, but now he's realized that he has never lost any of his sons. Remember how worried we've seen him, how fearful we've seen him, that he's going to lose this son or he's already lost that son. Uh, Thankfully, he hasn't lost any of them. And he hasn't even lost any grandchildren, no thanks to Reuben, right? As we remember. (laughs) But but this is a great day for him. He's excited. He's grateful. And he starts heading south. He says, we're going to go to Egypt. But then he stops. Verse 1, he stops in Beersheba. Before leaving the land, before going into Egypt to worship, before before he goes into Egypt, he stops to worship in Beersheba. And this is important. Because just because things start looking up, just because things start kind of working out and things seem to be getting better doesn't mean that's the time where we leave behind our dependence on God, right? Oh, God, thank you for getting me through that hard time. That was really tough. I appreciate it. You are so good. You are so great. I'll call you when I need you again, (laughs) right? Now, we don't say it that way, but that's what we do. So often, that's what we do. And, And what we've been learning, if we've been learning anything, Over the last several weeks, the last several months now, from the Word of God, it's that He is the sovereign, wise, and good God, the faithful, living, almighty God, always. He's always that God, and we are always dependent on Him, not just in the good times, not just in the bad times, both, all the time, every time. You've heard moderation in all things. You've heard that before? In terms of worship, no. No moderation. It's always. It's all the time. That's what Jacob is doing here. He says, you know what, before we go off and, and just start running off into Egypt, we need to stop here in the land that he promised to give us, and we need to worship. And we need to make sure we don't stop worshiping. He's not going to forget God. He's remembering God. He's also remembering his family and what's happened regarding Egypt and his family. You remember his grandfather Abraham went down to Egypt, and he was so afraid of the people in Egypt that he lied about who his wife was so that they wouldn't kill him, right? His own father Isaac, Jacob's father Isaac, had been told specifically in Genesis 26, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. So Jacob, before he just goes running off down to Egypt because things look like they're going well, he stops and says, you know what, I need to worship, and I need to make sure that this is what God wants me to do to head down to Egypt. So he stops in Beersheba, close to the border. He needs to make sure he's doing the right thing. So in Beersheba, he offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not worshiping his own God, but he's worshiping the God of his father, Isaac, because he's acknowledging that God is God. He's always been God, not his own idea of who God is, not his own God. The God who was God of his father Isaac is the same God that he needs to serve, that he needs to worship, that he needs to believe, follow, and obey. There are all other kinds of gods around. There's all other myths about God and and who he is and who the gods are around Jacob at the time. But Jacob purposefully goes back to the basics. Who's God? He's the God of my father, the God of his father, the God who's always been God, right? Right? He's the God who created everything. He made mankind in His image. He judged the entire world for sin in a great flood. He separated the nations into languages. It's that God who made the covenant with Abraham that He would have land, that He'd have lots of children, and that He'd be a blessing to the entire earth. And Jacob knows it's that same God who protected him through his time in Padan Aram. So it's time to get back to those basics. Who is this God? 
be faithful to this God, this God who is so faithful. And what's my responsibility to him? Jacob worships God. And all that he has in his family are with him. So, for the final time in his life, we read here in these verses that Jacob hears from God in night visions. God says, I am the strong one. That's that word God. That's that, the word El. I am El, God, strong one, the God of your father. It's confirmation from him. And God says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So, God, God says, do not be afraid, go down to Egypt. So, Jacob might think, oh, okay, it's okay to go then, Right? No, it's not okay to go, like God's just going to be okay with it. He's going to allow it. No, God says, this is part of my master plan. It's right for you to go. Go do that. Go down, but do not be afraid. Why not? God gives Jacob four reasons in these verses, uh, verses three and four here, four reasons why you should not be afraid to go to Egypt. First one, because I'll make you into a great nation. Right now, you're a family of just under 100 people, right? That's all you are. About a about hundred, a little fewer than a hundred people, when you go down to Egypt, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your family will become a multitude of people as part of a, a nation, a great nation. Now, what does that mean? That means you're going to be down there a while, right? Israel, as, as Israel goes down into Egypt, they will be there for quite a while. You remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God had told Abraham, the people are going to go down to Egypt and they'll be there for 400 years. It was going to be a long time. You know, the, the family had heard that the famine had five more years left, and they thought, maybe they thought, well, if we head down five years later, we can come back. No, it's going to be 400 years. And it's not just to provide for you during the famine, it's to make you into a great nation, to expand you in ways that you would never be able to expand in Canaan, because the Canaanites, if they see you growing, they'll come and attack or they'll come and they'll try to assimilate with you, just absorb you into Canaanite culture and religion and all that. So you're going to be taken out of that and made into a great nation, so don't fear. Second reason, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. The, the powerful God, God Almighty, is going to come with us to Egypt? I mean, he's not a, a local God like the Canaanites had, like the Egyptians had, where he's, you know, he's only, I only have power in this area. I can only do things over here. I can only do certain things. No, God is God everywhere, all the time. He's coming with us? How could we possibly be afraid? It's not even reasonable to be afraid of anyone or anything else, right? God himself is with you, so don't be afraid. Number three, I will bring you up again. God is promising to bring his people back out of Egypt after he's made us into a great nation, right? He's not going to leave us. Even though we'll be there for 400 years, he won't forget that he promised us land. In fact, he's going to bring us up out of the land himself, they say. Now, that would have been so encouraging to Israel because they're reading this as they're coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Remember, we talked about the timing of all this, when this was written. This was written to Israel as they came out of Egypt, this is encouraging. God was with us the whole time. He came down with us. He's, he's leaving with us. So don't fear because God's making you into a great nation. He's going to be with you. He's going to bring you out. And the fourth reason that Jacob should not have any fear is because jo Joseph's hand will close your eyes. And we understand that's a euphemism for Jacob, you're going to die there. <laughs> Joseph will close your eyes. That's a promise from God that Jacob really will get to see Joseph again. And not just see him, but be near him until he dies. So have no fear, you'll be reunited. That also means that Jacob isn't going to be coming back to the land 
at least alive. He's going to be in Egypt until he dies. But God will bring them back. He's going to be with them. He's going to bring them back. He's going to make them a great nation. So do not fear. So again, it's not just okay to go, like I've got you know, permission and I'm going to do this. No, God in his sovereign, wise, good plan says you're going. You must go. And so that was so helpful and reassuring to Jacob. This is giving him confidence. Okay, I'm going the right direction. I'm doing the right thing. So he set out from Beersheba, it says, to go to Egypt with all that he had. Notice verse 6, they brought all their goods. You remember back in chapter 45, Pharaoh said, don't worry about your goods. Forget all your stuff. Just get down here. They're bringing all of their goods. Now, maybe that was because it was good stewardship. You know, that's what God gave us. We should take care of it. But maybe I think more it was the recognition that they understood they're moving to Egypt. We're not going to come for a few years. We're not coming for a few weeks. We're going to be here for a long time. We are moving here. But this was confirmation from God. It gave Jacob confidence. This is the right decision. Now, this same confidence from God is possible for us, brothers and sisters, as part of the church. Think about when you need to make a decision. You know, how can I tell whether God wants me to go this way or that way, you know, to do this or do that? How can I tell whether it's what God wants? Well, we could try what Jacob didn't do and just watch for things to start going well and then just run over there and do that. But how often has that worked out for us? I mean, so many times it, it's, it's, you've seen it where people say, well, this is what God's doing, and I run over and I do that, and then it falls apart. Oh, God, how, how come you did that to us? You know, what happened? Why, why didn't things work out the way that we thought they were going to work out? Because, you know, we thought you were doing things. We thought you were working there because things looked good. We could try that. We have tried that before. <laughs> it doesn't work out very well. We could try Jacob's method of offering sacrifices and then hope God speaks to us at night. That's not his normal way of operating. He did that with Jacob. Instead, you remember a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, maybe it was a few months ago, we talked about how to make, how to make those kinds of decisions about what, what does God want me to do? Which direction does He want me to take? And we, we use that acrostic, godly choices. You remember the, the get all the facts for the, for the G, and then the, look at the objective of your heart. Look for direct instructions from the Word. Look out for warning signs and consider your witness. Those were the first, that's the godly part. And then choices we talked about. Check with others for advice and wisdom. Um, consider your, your, your holiness, the, your sanctification as you're being made more like Jesus. Can I do this and still... Uh, grow to be more like Jesus. Look at the outcomes that are possible. Consider the impact on others. Call out to God for wisdom. Exalt God and then start moving. That's what we talked about, just working through decisions. How do I know which way the Lord wants me to go? Start moving. That was it. The example of Jacob here was that part of exalt God, The, the life of exalting, worshiping God. As you consider choices, which one do I choose? Consider Which one can I worship in? Which one will exalt Jesus? Remember Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And like Andrew was saying this morning, you know, sometimes, I mean, everything that we do is eating, uh, is worshiping, including eating, right? I mean, when we're eating our Cheerios (laughs) and and we're worshiping God as we eat our Cheerios, we eat our our toast, we uh, drink our orange juice, whatever it is we're doing, everything, we're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can, Can I do this 
in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can I give thanks to God the Father through Jesus as I go in that direction? So it's a good reminder for us, or it's a good new lesson. Don't just assume it's right just because things look like they're going well. Everything's falling into place. But you better believe if you can't worship in making this choice or that one, it's the wrong one. But we also have the same confidence that Jacob has in these verses. We can have the same confidence, drawing the same lessons, the same confidence that that Jacob has here. The first thing that God said to Jacob was, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Brothers and sisters, are we made into a great nation? And I'm not talking about America. (laughs) I'm talking about us together as brothers and sisters. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says, once you were not a people. But now, you are God's people. He's made us into a great nation. Just as he said to Jacob, I'm going to make you into a great nation, we are in a great nation, the nation of God's people. And so we've got to stick together like brothers and sisters, like the brothers here, Jacob's sons needed to learn, that we've talked about over over the last few weeks. Requires trust in the Lord. It requires us to, to fellowship together, to be together. But he's made us into this great nation. Second, the second promise that God gave to Jacob was, I will be with you. Brothers and sisters, is God with us? Hebrews 13, 5, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age in Matthew 28. So again, that's the truth. And just as unreasonable as it would have been for Jacob to fear anything going into Egypt because God Almighty was with him, it's just as unreasonable for us to fear anything, including people, when God is with us. Third promise, will he himself bring us out of here? Hmm. Yes. (laughs) Jesus said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. He's telling us don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't be scared. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He himself is going to return for us. The encouraging words of 1 Thessalonians 4, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven With what? The cry of a command, the voice of an archangel, the the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, we reread in 1 Thessalonians 4. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He himself will come to get us. And, And whether that happens, whether he comes to get us when we die or whether that happens in the rapture, the Lord himself will bring us out of here just as he promised Jacob. Fourth promise, will Joseph close our eyes? (laughs) Now, we don't have an exact match for that promise from God, but that was for Jacob personally. What we do have are these lasting eternal promises from God, and I believe that that includes recognizing, being reunited with the people that we know here, that we have known here, being together with them again. It seems that we will know other people in heaven. We'll recognize people. 
So we'll have that part of the promise, that we will be together again. And that we'll be united with all of the people who have ever believed in Jesus Christ, in God, through Jesus, for all time. You remember the four disciples that recognized Moses and Elijah as they talked with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? How did they know who Moses and Elijah were? They'd never met them. <laughs> they predated the disciples by a few hundred years. First Thessalonians 4, we just read, this, this was an encouragement. This was supposed to be an encouragement that the people that, ha- that have died before you, you'll get to see again. You'll meet up together with the Lord in the air. So it seems like we're going to be able to recognize people. We'll, we'll have that fellowship with other people that we can recognize. So yes, we can, brothers and sisters, and we should have God-given confidence for life to live without fear based on the same promises that God gives Jacob here. But it doesn't come apart from being together as God's people. It doesn't come as we try to do it on our own. That's one of the blessings of being part of God's people. It, it, Jacob did this when he, when he worshipped. He brought his whole family with him. And after he worshipped the same God his father worshipped, the same God his father worshipped, his family was all together and they moved out together. So this is the confidence that we can have, that we should have in the, the, the presence of our Lord with us and, and that He's going to bring us home and that He's, he's given us all that He has done, all that He has given us. Secondly, let's keep going because time has started to, <laughs> to pass quickly. Secondly, genealogical completion, verses 8 through 27. Now, uh, this, is a, this is a list of the family of Jacob in this genealogical completion. Um, there are some things to notice in here, but what we're going to do is just skip ahead to 1 Timothy 1, where Paul gives Timothy a warning that there were people who were looking at genealogies and they were making up a lot of stories. Oh, this name here was this, and that, this man did this, and that lady did that. And what he says was that, I, I told you, Timothy, to stay in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So rather than speculate about these names and guess about this guy or that man or this lady, uh, we're going to just recognize that these people were important to God. He listed their names in His Word. He cared for them for their entire life, even if we don't know what that life was. But what's more clear to us is the end of that list in verses 26 and 27 where Moses goes to great lengths to arrive at the number 70. And we don't believe that numbers have secret meanings in Scripture. We're not looking for different hidden codes and things like that, but we do recognize that numbers were important, and they were, they were symbolic of certain ideas. And the number 70 in particular is symbolic of completion. Now, seven itself is a number of completion. To have 10 sevens, 70 is just completion at a large scale. And so that's the idea that Moses is trying to get to, that, that this was a, a specific list set up in this way to arrive at this complete number of 70. So our lesson from the genealogy here is the completeness of God's blessings, His promises in fulfilling His Word to His people. He said He was going to protect them, provide for them, expand them, grow them. He's already doing that. They're, they're seeing it already as they move into Egypt. His Word is already being fulfilled in clear ways. But that, com- that completeness, again, came in that community. Not, not individuals, not, not apart from it, but as, as a co- completed whole, a 
community together. So, let's look, number three, at the genuine coming together. The genuine coming together in verses 28 to 30 will end with this point, and we'll save the next point for next week. Judah is sent out as the one to lead the family. They're coming to the land of provision, the place that God has prepared through Joseph for Israel. You remember, Judah had been the one to separate Joseph and Jacob. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery, and and he separated father and son. Now Judah's the one to bring them back together. He's leading the family back into, down into the land where they will be reunited. After they're in place, Joseph is able to meet his father for the genuine reunion. Uh, The word for presented himself is the word appeared, and it's normally only used for appearances of God. But for Jacob, Joseph has been dead for over 20 years. He he never expected to see him again, so he appears out of nowhere in his mind, right? I mean, in reality, he's not just appearing, but he's seeing him for like, like he's seeing him for the first time, like an appearance of God. That's the word that's used there. By God's grace, it's real. They're together again. So they fall on their neck. They, they weep. Verse 30, Jacob says he's happy, happy enough that he could just die, right? But where they came together was the land of Goshen. And we have a picture of the land of Goshen because it's kind of hard to picture to understand uh, what we're talking about when we say they settled in the land of Goshen and it was a land of, of plenty. Th- this is a, a map of um, Egypt on the lower left side. Israel uh, kind of right in the middle of the screen there. Do you see that big splotch of green on the left side? That's called the Nile Delta, where the Nile branches off into a a bunch of different branches as it flows into the sea. And what's happening there is, if you can see the line underneath it, the green line all the way down it, that's the Nile River and all of the nutrients and all uh, all all that it gives to bring life in that area, the plant life, so that people can eat, so that animals can eat. And you see as it makes its way into the sea that it branches off and it provides nutrients and minerals and all of those things needed for growing plants. On the eastern side of that is Goshen. That's where the people got to settle as part of God's blessing in Egypt. Instead of all of the brown parts, (laughs) which is desert, they got to settle in the best of the land. Remember, Pharaoh had promised them in chapter 45, verse 18, "You, you will have the best of the land of Egypt. That's how God provided for his people that green area. Now, there's a famine right now, but they're going to be there for 400 years. And so, they're going to be blessed by this land, the blessing of God. But the biggest blessing was not just having Joseph and Jacob in the land of Goshen, but having the entire family together in one place in genuine unity. Because Psalm 133, 1 reminds us, it is, the psalmist says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Brothers and sisters coming together in fellowship, genuine unity is God's plan for his people. It has been, it is now, and it will be. And Jesus, in fact, prayed this. And we'll close with this in John 17. Jesus prayed this for us. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples who are with him. He's like, Father, I'm not praying for just these men, but for all of us, all of us who are here today, those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for our unity, 
our fellowship together, our, our unity together as a body of Christ. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, Jesus says, that they may be one even as we are one, the same kind of unity that God the Father and God the Son have. That's what Jesus was praying for, for unity for us. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So, the people around you right now are not hindrances to your growth, to, to your fellow, to, to your sanctification, to your holiness. They're not hindrances to your encouragement and your edification. They are part of what God's given us on purpose to be unified with together in fellowship, in worship to our great God. Now, there's so much more that we could say that, that I had planned for. There's so much more that we could say about the rest of this. We'll have to save that for next week. Um, unless we want to be here for another hour. <laughs> but praise God for what He's doing in His people and how He works among His people. And this is, this is the message that we're, that we're drawing out from these verses, the, 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 the fellowship and the blessing that God gives in His people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are so good. God, thank You that You've given us one another. Thank You, Lord, that You've given us the confidence because of Your presence. Father, because you are with us, we should not. We don't need to fear. God, when we fear, so often we've forgotten that you are with us. Lord, so often we, when we fear, we take our eyes off of you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that you are with us. Lord, that you have, you have made us into a great nation. Father, that you are with us now and one day you will bring us out of here. Father, that we can be confident, living without fear because of who you are, the great God, the faithful, living God. Father, we praise you. We thank you. Help us to remember, help us to remember the songs that we sing that, that teach us about your greatness, your goodness, your power, and your wisdom. Father, we praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.